Thank you, choir. I was uh, looking at the lyrics to that song a, a couple of times this week, and I was amazed at just how well it served as a uh, link between our sermon last Sunday on training ourselves for godliness and the theme of today's sermon, Perseverance Pays Off. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to 1 Timothy 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 16. It's on page 933 in your pew Bible. 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. It's on page 933 in your pew Bible. And I want to let you know that um, uh, Webster Bible Church was uh, founded in 1959 by Pastor Hollenbeck. I remember that because every time we do the membership class, we're going to give a little history of the church. And uh, just before the worship service this morning... Brother Bob Lelio uh, knocked on my door, and standing there in the hallway uh, was Pastor Holland Beck's son, Steve, who was born that same year, 1959. Him and his wife, Beth, are serving the Lord. He's a pastor in Wisconsin, and they are with us today. Brother, can you stand, you and your wife, just so we can greet you? There they are. Wonderful to have you. He could see that I was uh, experiencing Sunday morning psychosis right before the service, and he's like, I'm a pastor, I understand, we'll talk to you afterwards. So, so thankful for his, his uh, graciousness, his patience. And uh, well, let's look at 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16, where Paul is continuing his exhortation from verses 6 to 10, training for godliness. Now he's talking about persevering in that. 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. Paul tells Timothy, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in purity, in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You read this text, and it's quite obvious that there are several punchy imperatives uh, that comprise this passage. As I read it again and again, it occurred to me this is, in a sense, a Holy Spirit-inspired motivational speech for Timothy. Uh, Paul is wrapping up his exhortation with these very um, spirit-charged directives to Timothy, who he wants to persevere in the things in which Paul has instructed him. Uh, one leadership consultant said, a good motivational speech does exactly that. It motivates it engages the minds and the hearts of people in such a way that motivates them to think more clearly, see opportunities, and move forward with action. Think more clearly, see opportunities, and move forward with action. And that's exactly how this text impressed me. That's the kind of effect that it had upon me and it has had upon me over the years as I've returned to it again and again, even as a pastor. But we need to remember that this is no mere motivational speech on Paul's part. This is not empty rhetoric. Uh, uh, Paul is not simply uh, giving Timothy lots of hype with no substance. 
Paul is not speaking as a coach. He's not speaking as the head of some sort of sales team. He's not out to, to win a game or to boost sales. Paul is speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ to Timothy, who is a good servant of Jesus Christ. Timothy, Paul says, has the opportunity to change lives. Timothy has the opportunity to save lives, including his own. To make the most of the time he now has. To make a real difference in the lives of others as he capitalizes on the resources and opportunities that God has given to him, even as a young man. If we could sum up the central point of this text as it relates to pastors, and by extension to all believers, it would be this. Go all out for God, and you will be forever glad you did. Go all out for God, and you will be forever glad you did. Paul's challenge to Timothy, which consists of multiple exhortations and directives, can be distilled into four points. A four-point plan, if you will. Number one, make God's Word your manual for life. Make God's Word your manual for life. Verse 11, Paul simply says to Timothy, command and teach these things. There's that phrase again, these things. It's the same phrase that Paul used back in verse 6. And there we saw that it referred to the doctrinal issues that Paul had previously raised. The beautiful confession about the person and work of Jesus Christ in chapter 3, verse 16. It also includes the bad doctrine that false teachers had brought into the church that would draw people away from Christ if they paid attention to them. And Paul taught then, as he is reiterating now, that a pastor who exalts Jesus Christ and exposes false teaching for what it is, is a good servant of Jesus Christ. He says that in verse 6. But now in verse 11, look at what Paul's doing. He's reinforcing the pastor's responsibility with a forthright directive. In verse 6, he told Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. Notice how direct he is. It was encouragement backed by a strong exhortation. That word command is a strong verb, isn't it? Command and teach these things. The word command is the Greek word parangelo from the prefix para, which means with or alongside of or closely beside, and then the main verb angelo, uh, which you might recall sounds a lot like angelos, the Greek word for angel or messenger, and rightly so because the main verb means to transmit a message. So when you put the, the prefix with the main verb, here's the full meaning as the Discovery Bible shares, to give a command that is fully authorized because it, because it has gone through the proper and necessary channels. If you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of Paul's letter, how does Paul introduce himself? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So Christ commands Paul as his apostle. Paul commands Timothy 
as a good servant of Jesus Christ. And now he is telling Timothy that he is to command the church, his brothers and sisters in Christ. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. I thought, you know, and, and this happened often growing up, and I'm sure you as parents can relate. If a sister tells her brother, go clean up your room, he might tell her to go blow smoke, or he just might ignore her, or he might even say, you can't tell me what to do. But if she says, mom said to clean up your room, he may still disregard her, he may still disobey, but those two words, mom said, change everything, don't they? Because now the sister's directive is backed by parental authority. And that's what's happening here. The same is true of a pastor who preaches God's word. The authority is not in himself. The authority is the word of God. He is simply delivering God's message to the church of which Christ is the head. And therefore, we as believers are obligated to obey. I think Paul's saying this to Timothy because when you look at uh, this letter to Timothy, the second letter he wrote to Timothy, some of the other passages we read about Timothy, it's, we get the impression that to some degree, Timothy, in terms of his natural personality, may have been a little timid. And we know that Timothy was young at this point. We'll say more about that in a second. He was a young adult. And several folks in the church would have been a lot older than he was. It might have been difficult for Timothy to tell people what to do. Teaching is one thing, transmitting knowledge, but actually to give people moral imperatives, commanding them what to do from God's word, might have not come naturally to him. But Paul is reminding Timothy of what these things are. We are talking about the doctrine of Jesus Christ, his person and work. We're talking about false teaching that can infiltrate the church that needs to be exposed. And Paul wants Timothy to know that God's word is not a suggestion. God's word is not a piece of advice among many pieces that we can get around us. God's word is not an FYI. All right, it is, it is not something that uh, might interest people but requires no action on their part. The revelation of God demands a response from us. And for that reason, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. The combination of verbs command and teach stresses not only the imparting of biblical knowledge but the issuing of ethical imperatives imperatives, uh, how people are to respond in light of the truth they have received. Furthermore, these two verbs, command and teach, appear in the present tense. This is supposed to be an ongoing part of Timothy's ministry. And by extension, it applies to all of us, because if the command is command and teach, then what are we supposed to do in response to that? We are supposed to believe and obey. Command and teach, we're to trust and obey, taking to heart the message that we've heard. One commentator writes, as a servant of Christ, it is his responsibility to teach, even to command in God's name, his congregation to trust and obey the doctrine that he has received from the apostles, end quote. And that's simply to say that God's word is the final authority. It gets passed on to us through the apostles' teaching as recorded in Scripture and then communicated through pastors. We're to command and teach it. 
We're to trust and obey it without reservation, without qualification, without hesitation. Because as Seth and Rebecca said a moment ago, this is the word of the Lord. So to go all out for God, make his word your manual for life. Number two, verse 12, set an example for the believers to follow. Set an example for believers to follow. Continuing on in verse 12, Paul says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So you see where Paul's going here. Timothy has delivered a message with his mouth, command and teach. But he says, Timothy, that message had better be backed up by your life. Matthew Henry wrote, those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life, lest they pull down with one hand what they build up with another. That's an important word for pastors and anyone who would teach God's word. Remember, Jesus criticized the religious leaders of his day, telling his disciples and the crowd of people, do what they say, but don't do as they do because they don't practice what they preach. And that is to say that Scripture is the final authority, so we ought to obey Scripture whether or not our teachers and pastors do. But this same all-authoritative Word of God says this, to the shepherds of Christ's church in 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being what? Examples to the flock. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. He's talking about the importance and the power of personal example. And this is how a younger pastor or elder like Timothy especially overcomes the natural disadvantage of his youth. Now, we know from Acts 16, or we know even right here that Timothy was young because he says, let no one look down on you or despise you for your youth. And going back to Acts 16, that if Timothy was uh, an older teenager, when Paul took him under his wing and, and, and he joined Paul in his missionary endeavors, And that was the mid-50s A.D., and now this letter was written in the mid-60s A.D., then it is fairly safe to assume that at this point in his life, Timothy was probably in his late 20s. Almost all commentators agree that he was no older than his mid-30s. We're not given Timothy's precise age, but without question, he was still considered a youth at this point in his life. And that is a natural disadvantage to overcome. I remember at my previous church in Massachusetts becoming the lead pastor at age 31. And my predecessor, who had been my uncle, was 25 years older than me. And I remember as I was candidating for that position, the elders were uh, were interviewing me that some of them were old enough to be my father and even close to being the age of what could be my grandfather. And I remember as they were asking me different questions and and what leadership would look like uh, biblically and practically in the life of the church, I remember telling them on, on a personal note, look, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I will give you my very best effort. But one thing I need you to understand is I can't give you 25 years of experience I don't have. I just had a limited amount of experience compared to my predecessor and those who had gone on before me. 
Some of the elders, old enough to be my father, I understood even then that it would be very natural for them to look down on me, to discriminate against me, to, to kind of discount me because of my age. And that's what the word despise means in this context. Let no one despise you for your youth. In this context, it doesn't mean that they hate Timothy. It means that they disregard him. They, they kind of look down on him. They, they don't really count him as all that important. Um, they think little of him due to his age. And it's not right for a church to do that. A man should be, based, should be judged based on his character, on his spiritual maturity, not because of his age. It occurred to me that our youngest elder is 50 years old. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but we need to be careful that it could suggest one of two problems. Number one, it could be that younger men in their late 20s, mid-30s, 40s, need to mature, right? We know that that is a problem from Scripture. Uh, the author of Hebrews says that some of you by this time ought to be teachers, but you're still getting fed baby milk. You ought to be uh, absorbing and teaching meat doctrines, as it were. So in some cases, some men may need to mature. Uh, Paul said, when I became a man, I put away what? childish things, right? It's time to put your boyhood years behind and become a man in the fullest sense of the word, spiritually. But it could also be that we could be guilty of what the members at Ephesus were doing or the members of Corinth, where there can be a tendency to discount men, to not even consider them at all, simply because of their age and regardless of their spiritual maturity or character. And this seems to be the case uh, that Paul was dealing with when he wrote his letter to the church at Corinth when he was sending Timothy there as his representative before Timothy had gone to Ephesus. In his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul wrote this, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." You look at those verses and we might ask ourselves, why would Timothy even feel uneasy among them? Why would they look down on Timothy? Why would they make things difficult for him? Why would they fill Timothy with anxiety instead of peace? Why would this be a concern? It's because Paul knew that Timothy was young. And he wanted to make sure that nobody in the church discriminated against him on account of his age. As one commentator put it, they needed to treat him like a Timothy, not like little Timmy. They needed to treat him like a Timothy, not like a little Timmy. Uh, Timmy. So Paul tells the church, let no one despise him. Don't look down on him. Don't discriminate against him. Don't discount him. Don't think little of him. That is the church's responsibility not to discriminate on someone because of their age. But to Timothy, he also lays down a responsibility. Timothy, the church, should not despise you for your youth. But to Timothy, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. In other words, Timothy, don't you give them a reason to look down on you. Don't you give them a reason to think little of you. Don't you give them a reason to disregard you because of your spiritual immaturity. 
because you, your character reveals someone who is still a boy spiritually rather than a grown-up man spiritually. People would not despise Timothy's youth if they could admire his example. That's the idea of verse 12. Paul lists five areas. Some say, see a breakdown here where the first two areas refer to, to Timothy's outward public life, the, 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 the part of him that is more observable, and that these last three qualities uh, refer more to his inner life, his private life, a matters of the heart and conscience that God alone could see. Well, let's go through them just briefly, five areas. First of all, Paul says, be an example or set an example for the believers in speech. In speech. We know from Scripture that speech is the barometer of the heart. Jesus said it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So said Jesus in Matthew 12, 34. Paul expounds on this principle in Ephesians 4 saying, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And that verse appears in the whole context of Ephesians 4 of guarding our speech and our conduct. So if we're to set an example for the believers in terms of our speech, we should avoid sinful speech such as gossip, slander, lying, complaining, arguing, words that are hateful and harsh. Positively, we must speak words that are loving, truthful, helpful, constructive, and thoughtful. Words that are designed to build people up rather than to tear them down. You want to be a godly example to others? Then watch what you say. Notice what Paul says, how singular it is. Let no unwholesome word, not even one, proceed from your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to the hearers. One paraphrase of that verse says, say only what helps, each word a gift. I thought, man, how I would measure my words more carefully if there was not to escape from my lips even one unwholesome word, and that every word I do say, every word is a gift. Next area, in conduct. Set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct. We understand how important it is for life and lips to go together. The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter warned pastors, watch how you live lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues. Watch how you live lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues. Right after saying out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus asked, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord when you don't do what I say? You see how conduct and speech are intended to go hand in hand? One pastor put it, a minister's life ought to say that he is God's man all the time. He is God's man all the time, at home, at church, at the grocery store, on the freeway, on the playground, at the barbershop, everywhere. And that's to be the case with all believers, but of course what ought to be true of all Christians must be true of those who serve as pastors, elders, as church leaders, because we are instructed to lead by example. 
And they're to do this not only in terms of their outward, public, observable life, but as a matter of the heart before God, their inner private life, even those parts of my life that only God can see. Remember what Paul told Timothy near the start of this letter in chapter 1, verse 5? He said, the aim or the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Well, if that is their aim, if that is the goal for their hearers, should it not be the goal and aim of their very own lives? And so Paul goes right into that third quality in faith, or uh, excuse me, in speech, in conduct, and now in love. Set an example for the believers in love. Love is the supreme virtue. Jesus said the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said these two commandments are like pegs. Everything on God's law and the prophet hangs on them. Problem is no one has ever kept these commands perfectly. Who here can say, I have always loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. No room for improvement, no need for progress in my life, no need for advancement. I just need to maintain that perfection I've had all my life. If you feel that way, please do not raise your hand. Do not stand up and testify. It would be embarrassing. No one has ever kept these commands perfectly except Jesus, the holy and sinless Son of God. He became flesh. He became a man so that he could perfectly fulfill God's law as our substitute. Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us have. And what's more is he took on himself the penalty that we deserve because of our sins against holy God. And here's the wonder of the gospel. There was a beautiful transaction that took place at Calvary for all who believe in Christ as their Savior. And Paul tells us what it is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. See that? So if we, I like compare this. Like if I had a spiritual bank account. Jesus, all the riches of God's righteousness. Matt Fletcher, all the, my debt, an eternal debt I could never pay because of my sins against a holy God. All eternity in hell could never repay all my debt of sin against God. But at Calvary, God switched accounts. God made him who had no sin to become sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Grace, some have made the word grace, which means undeserved kindness, God's grace toward us as sinners, as an acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. And we get to partake in those riches, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but simply because God graciously gives it to us because he loves us. And all we have to do is receive it by faith. And get this, even the faith it takes to believe is a gift from God.
For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, to make us right with God, to reconcile us to God, we are what the Bible calls justified. We are legally declared righteous by God. Uh, his, uh, Jesus' righteousness is credited to us. It is imputed to us by faith. God credits our faith as righteousness. That is our standing. That is our position before God the moment we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the challenge of the Christian life is to become in practice what we already are in position. To become practically righteous. To become more and more like Jesus Christ every day as we yield our spirit to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, to guide us, to direct us, to lead us instead of leaning on our own resources. And that's Paul's concern when he talks about walking in love. In Colossians 3 he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that's our standing, right? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on what? Love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All the other virtues of the Christian life, many of which are listed right here, are bound together by the supreme virtue, which is love. So Paul says to Timothy, set an example for the believers in love. Next, in faith. Galatians 5, 6 says, In Christ Jesus, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. And so if a pastor is to be an example to his people, he needs to exercise strong confidence in God, believing what God says about himself, that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. That means that we know from the truth of Scripture that God has the power to save any sinner. God has the power to solve any problem. God has the power to navigate us through any situation, any crisis. God has the power to overcome any seemingly impossible obstacle. Remember what Jesus said? He sized up a situation and he said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. You know what I do every time I come to that verse or it comes to my mind as I'm faced with a situation? I, I kid you not, it's almost 100% of the time. I change one word to make it more personal for me. And I say, with Matt, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I can't tell you how many times I've thought of that verse and personalized it. And even so, I get convicted when I read this comment in one of the books I was reading this week. The minister ought properly to be the boldest believer in the church. And I thought to myself, I trust in God, but to say, am I the boldest believer in the church? I would say, I want to be. 
But so often, you know what I'm like? I'm like the man who came to Jesus in desperation and cried out, said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe you, like me, can relate well to the disciples who cried out to the Lord Jesus, increase our faith. And I am hugely encouraged by Jesus' response to the disciples' plea. Basically, he says, if you have a bare kernel of faith, the size of a mustard seed, or we might say say a poppy seed, you could say to that sycamore tree, go jump in the lake, (laughs) and it would do it. That's what Jesus said. And his point is, look, it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. The power is not in, if I just had more power to believe, it's really where that faith is placed. And I'm amazed at how many times when Jesus rebuked his disciples for their little faith, what did he do in that moment? He did something to strengthen their faith. He showed them the power of God. He reminded them of the promise of God. What a gracious Savior we serve. Now, final area, impurity. Set the believer an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. The particular Greek term for purity here, hognea, was often used by the Greeks in reference to sexual purity. So we can talk about, you know, maybe purity of our motives, um, purity of our heart in terms of single devotion to God. Uh, We can talk about purity in general of our our general way of life that we have, that that, that we are uh, morally pure in a broad sense. And it could mean all those things. It could encompass all those things. But the particular Greek term was most often used in reference to sexual purity. And while all of us can struggle with that at any stage of life, I think it's especially appropriate for a young man like Timothy. Remember, he's probably in his late 20s at this point, maybe early 30s. And just a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy to encourage your sisters in Christ in all purity. There's the emphasis. Various studies and surveys have shown that pastors have admitted, these are the ones that admit it, to having inappropriate sexual relationships with others in the church, 37%. Well over one out of every three pastors has admitted to inappropriate sexual behavior with others in the church. A book that I read years ago as a young pastor, this was 1991. So, yeah, young man myself, uh, just early 20s actually. Kent Hughes wrote a book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. It's become a classic. I have a 10th year anniversary in my office. And in this book, Kent Hughes lists 17 disciplines that young men need to cultivate with the help of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And I opened that book, I cracked it open, and guess what, after the introduction, guess what the first discipline he addresses is? The discipline of purity. The discipline of purity. Near the end of that chapter, 
he lists what he borrowed from another author. He, he noted it in his book, what he called uh, four hedges. Things that we need to build around ourselves to, to be careful, to guard our heart. And these were not outright biblical commands. They were suggestions that were based on scriptural principles. And one of the first thing, in the first hedge he warned was warning against verbal intimacy with the opposite sex, with someone who is not your spouse. Verbal intimacy. It doesn't mean that you can't have a meaningful conversation, but once you start confiding in them about your deepest feelings and problems, or you allow them to do that with you, there can become an emotional connection. Even in all innocence, that grows to something more. And Kent Hughes attests that many affairs start this way. You might remember several Sundays ago where I shared two pastors in, in my past, even the one that, that taught me how to preach and, and, and really coached me along and mentored me in that way when I was 12 years old. And, and that's what happened with him. He was in a counseling relationship with a woman that started off very innocent. And pretty soon, she felt like she could talk to him. I wish I could talk to my husband this way. I wish my husband were like you. And he became very flattered. And then he really cared about her issues and became more connected with her. And all of a sudden, it went beyond the spiritual realm to the emotional realm, to the relational realm, to the physical realm. So Kent Hughes says, be careful. He says, be careful even when it comes to displaying casual physical affection. I read through these things and I thought, and there's a balance there, isn't it? Because the Bible does call believers the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to be able to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and not be paranoid that if we have a meaningful conversation that's taken the wrong way or someone you know, puts their hand on my shoulder or gives me a little hug or something, oh, what'd you mean by that? You know, and kind of freaking out over everything. But here's the thing. As we seek to strike a proper balance to relate to one another in all purity, here's what I wrote down. I would hope that a Christian sister would be able to describe her pastor or any brother in Christ this way. He genuinely cares. He is truly compassionate, but he's also careful. He's cautious. He encourages me as a sister in Christ in all purity. That's the biblical model. So Paul says, set the believers an example, indicating specific believers. He doesn't say just in general, set believers an example. He says, set the believers an example. And the indication seems to be the, the believers that Timothy rubs shoulders with all the time, the believers in among whom he lives, the people that can actually um, listen to him talk, the people that can actually watch how he behaves and interact with others. Because those are the ones that he most influences. So Paul says, set the believers an example. To go all out for God, Timothy, make God's word your manual for life and set an example for the believers to follow. Thirdly, and we'll get through these last points fairly quickly, stay the course showing others the way. That's point number three. Stay the course showing others the way. This has to do with persistence or perseverance. 
Now this quality is implied in the previous verses, considering that Paul's instructions to Timothy to command and teach these things and to set an example for the believers are all in the present tense, indicating ongoing action, that this is to be a way of life for Timothy. But as Paul expands his instructions in verses 13 to 15, he emphasizes not only what Timothy is to do, but the attitude and the intensity with which Timothy is to go about these things. Look at verses 13 to 15 of 1 Timothy 4. Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. You look at verse 13 and you'll see three ministry commands that are all based on a single imperative. Devote yourself to. That word devote, prosecco, literally means to have toward. It it means to give your full attention to something. It means to set a course and to stick with it, keep at it. And Paul tells Timothy to, to focus on three things in particular in his ministry. The public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Timothy would read this and it would occur to him, well, this is nothing new. These practices had been part of the corporate worship of God's people all through history. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Nehemiah 8, written five centuries before Timothy, is a great example of this. It says, and I'm just summarizing this, all the people gathered as one man and told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel So Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, and he read from it in the presence of the men and of the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, and Ezra stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. Furthermore, we're told in that same passage that there were several men standing alongside of Ezra who helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Then verse 8 says, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And essentially, Paul tells Timothy here in 1 Timothy 4.13, Timothy, that's what I want you to do. I want you to do that until I come. And the indication is that when Paul comes, guess what he's going to do? He's going to do the same thing that he instructed Timothy to do. Read scripture publicly exhort the people accordingly and teach God's word accurately so that they get the sense of it and are thus able to respond with obedience. So Timothy's reading would include not only the Old Testament scriptures, but also the writings of the apostles, who we know from Peter's second epistle, even by this point, In the New Testament, the first century period were considered Scripture themselves. And that's why Paul commands that his letters be read in all the churches. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 5.27 and Colossians 4. 
I want this read in all the churches because as an apostle, he, his writing, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And his writings were every bit as inspired as God breathed at the Old Testament scriptures. So read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Keep publicly reading scripture, exhorting the people and explaining the text. Paul doesn't lay out new guidelines for Timothy. He doesn't say, man, Timothy, that was hundreds of years ago when Nehemiah did that. Let's get with the times. Let's adapt all this to Greco-Roman culture. Let's do something different. We need to, to come up with new innovative ministry strategies, Timothy. No, Paul tells Timothy, just stick with it. Teach God's word. Be an example by obeying it yourself. And God's purposes, God's will will be done. Stick, Timothy, with the long-established means of grace that over the centuries have earned Christians the designation people of the book. People of the book. People ask, what's well, Webster Bible Church? I said, well, God's word is the foundation and the center of all that we do. I said, in fact, the Bible is our middle name. Webster Bible Church. This was Timothy's calling as a minister of the gospel, as Paul reminds him in verse 14. His calling was confirmed by the testimony of elders who had heard Timothy's teaching, who had observed his godly way of life, who had endorsed his ministry by laying their hands on him, spiritually strengthening him for the work to which God had called him. And I believe that Paul reminding Timothy of this was meant to strengthen and encourage Timothy in his present situation. He wants Timothy to know, Timothy, you're not on your own. You're part of the church. Timothy, you are not on your own. Even though I am not with you bodily, I am with you in spirit. We are fellow ministers of the gospel in the trenches together fighting the good fight of faith. I fully support you, Timothy, and I hope to come to you soon. Stick with it. In the meanwhile, Timothy could be assured that the spirit of Christ would be with him who would never leave him or forsake him. And so Paul says, practice these things, Timothy. Immerse yourself in them. The Greek word for practice can also mean to ponder. So he's telling Timothy, Timothy, just don't go through rotely, you know, reading scripture, just kind of going through your normal routine as a pastor. I want you to think about what you're doing. Ponder the word of God. Pray to the Lord. Focus as you're working on your message preparation. Trust God to be at work. He says, Timothy, I want you to immerse yourself in these things. You know what the Greek literally says? It says, be in them. Be in them, Timothy. Let this be all-consuming, all-absorbing to make you into the man of God that he has called you to be. The Revised English Bible words it this way, make these matters your business, make them your absorbing interest. Donald Guthrie explains the thrust of Paul's word saying, the mind is to be immersed in these pursuits as the body in the air it breathes. What a word picture. Why? Why should Timothy do this? Paul tells him at the end of verse 15, so that all may see your progress. And that clause conveys a couple of key points just even on my initial reading of it. First, it shows that <laughs> Pastors aren't perfect. If Timothy is to make progress, it means that Timothy has not arrived. Timothy is not perfect. And so the example he gives is not one of perfection, but direction. 
that Timothy is continually growing in the grace and in the knowledge of his Lord Jesus Christ. He's showing believers the way to go. And the second thing this clause reinforces is the principle that motives matter. When Paul says, Timothy, I want you to practice these things, immerse yourself in things so that all will see your progress, it's not so that everyone will say how great Timothy is, how wonderful Timothy is, so that he'll get public acclaim and recognition. It's what the Pharisees did. They did their deeds simply so that they could be seen and admired by others. And that's why it's important for Timothy to be an example in purity, pureness of heart. Timothy's example is to be visible to others, not so that they will praise him, but so that they will see Timothy's good works and glorify who? His father in heaven, right? That's what Jesus said. Let others see your good works so that they may, uh, or live in such a way, let your light shine before men so that others may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. That's Timothy's goal. He's to stay the course showing others the way. And then Paul concludes his compelling charge to Timothy with one final all-encapsulating directive in verse 16. And this really sums it up. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Fourth point, Timothy, remain vigilant in view of the glorious outcome. Remain vigilant in view of the glorious outcome. The word persist translates a Greek term that appears only here in the pastoral epistles. But it's used eight other times in the New Testament. Let me give you a negative example of it. Romans 6.1 where Paul says, Shall we continue or persist in sin that grace may abound? God forbid that we should continue in that pattern of living. Positively in Colossians 1 he tells believers, God has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him if indeed you continue, persist in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. And that's Paul's point here. He wants Timothy to go all in with God. He wants Timothy to go all out for God and not to give up when the going gets tough. Stick with the gospel. Refuse false teaching. Instruct people accordingly. And he wants Timothy to see what's at stake. Timothy, by doing this, by practicing these things, by immersing yourself in these things, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Phil Riken wrote, Souls perish for the lack of a sound ministry. On the other hand, ministers who continue in God's grace have the assurance of their own salvation and the joy of leading others to Christ. Does it strike you weird Maybe even wrong for Paul to say, Timothy, by doing this, you will save yourself. You will save your hearers. It kind of reminds me when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 that I become all mean, all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. You might say, Paul, that's arrogant. You, you don't save anybody, only God saves. And Paul would agree with that in the ultimate sense, but he would qualify it with this. Yes, it is God who saves, but he saves through human instrumentation. It is God who saves, he does the work, but he saves through human instrumentation. 
The Bible teaches us that we are to work out what God works in. Uh, Philippians 2 tells us that we are to work out, not work for our salvation, but to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. John Stott wrote, Perseverance is not the meritorious cause, but rather the ultimate evidence of our salvation. It's important to understand that. Perseverance is not the meritorious cause, but rather the ultimate evidence of our salvation. And that's why we say perseverance pays off. So go all out for God and you'll be forever glad you did. I want to close by reading an illustration from history that Phil Riken wrote at the close of his comments on this passage. He said, when it comes to persevering to the very end, it is hard to think of a better example than Thomas Boston. In the last months of his life, that faithful Scottish minister from the 18th century was confined to his bed by a serious illness. Yet Boston continued to preach. His little congregation would gather around the window of the parsonage from which he would read, preach, and teach God's word on the Lord's Day. Boston's last sermon was called the necessity of self-examination. In the sermon, he challenged his beloved congregation to remain in the faith. He begged them to make sure of their eternal salvation, to, quote, bend all their endeavors and attention to gain a blessed and happy eternity, end quote. And then Riken writes, every pastor who fits the biblical portrait begs his people to do the same thing, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, unto salvation. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there's so much in this powerful text. And I know that I have barely scratched the surface today. We take confidence in knowing that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is of God and not of us. It's amazing, Lord, that you would use the likes of any of us to accomplish your good and holy will in the lives of others. Lord, I thank you for giving me and my fellow elders the, the privilege of shepherding the flock of God here at Webster Bible Church. I thank you, Lord, for our brother pastor who's visiting today, whose father was the founding pastor of this church. From generation to generation, we observe and we teach to others the fear of the Lord, the way of salvation, the way of true righteousness, what it means to train ourselves for godliness. Lord, we trust that your Holy Spirit will continue to work in all our hearts as we meditate on the truths that we have heard today. Help us to respond to your revelation with trust and obedience by the help of your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that anyone sitting in this room today that is not trusted in Christ for their eternal salvation would today believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. For those of us, Lord, who have already been reconciled to you through faith in Christ, we pray that we would increasingly become in practice what we already are in position, that we would be complete in Christ. Lord, help us to do that. Help us not to, to put... Uh, 
today's message on the back burner to have it go in one ear and out the other, but help us like Mary to ponder all of these things in our hearts and that we would live lives accordingly. In gratitude to you, the God who gave himself for us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.